my favorite singer of all time was Stephen Chris Chapman because I, I grew up um, with, with uh, listening to his music. And uh, the song that keeps going to my head today is His Strength is Perfect When Our Strength is Gone. He'll carry us when we can't carry on. Raised in his power, the weak become strong. His strength is perfect. So we will depend on that truth from later on in the book that we're actually in today. So if you're in 2 Corinthians 6, would you please stand as a way to honor the reading of God's word? Stand with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to be uh, in verses 1 through 13. Verses 1 through 13. Paul's words to the church at Corinth. He said this, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Let's ask God to illuminate his word for us this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, your word is true and it is strong and it is powerful. Um, And uh, I can have confidence today that because... Um, I'm reading it and speaking it, Lord, that, that you are going to do something. So um, tether my words to the scripture. Help me to stay um, on task. Lord, I pray for everyone here in the sound of my voice that you would uh, allow them to hear uh, with ears that can truly hear. Lord, we ask that you would open up blind eyes this morning. We pray for hearts of stone to be replaced with hearts of flesh. And God, we want to be encouraged. We want to hear truth, even if it hurts. So help us to be receptive and open to what you have for us this morning. God bless your word. Thank you for those right now who are teaching our children, who are in the nursery, who are um, doing things behind the scenes. Lord, we thank you for them and for their service to us even right now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, How many of you have been to a conference, professional conference, Bible conference, a conference of some kind in the last two or three years? You've been to a conference. Okay. How many of you have... This might be discouraging. How many of you have read a book in the last year? Okay. How many of you turned it around and read uh, on the back who in the world the guy's name or girl's name on the front was? Okay, you turned it around to see who this person was? Okay, yeah. So at a conference or on a, on a book, um, we put the credentials of the person who wrote or the person who is speaking. So even uh, here a few weeks ago, uh, we had Gil Gravel speak at our missions conference and and uh, a few weeks before, we put in the worship folder uh, kind of his bio, um, his credentials. Um, we said that he has a PhD. Whoa! 
PhD. He has credentials. Where from? The, the Free University of Amsterdam. Wow, that's great. We want to, to credential people. We want to know that they have um, the wherewithal to, to tell us what they're supposed to be telling us according to their title or according to the title of the book. So we, we, uh, we look for credentials. We look for commendation. Uh, also, frequently in books or in conferences or in things of that nature, um, there will be phrases or words or paragraphs from other people from what they have learned from the speaker or from what they have appreciated about their previous books, their endorsements, the endorsement saying, you can trust this man, this woman to write this book on this subject. This is exactly what we want to, uh, to notice today in 2 Corinthians 6 because Paul is defending his ministry and giving his credentials. He's giving his credentials as one qualified to be an apostle and a teacher of God's word. And he's doing so in the context connected to what Pastor Ron has talked about for the last two weeks straight, and that's reconciliation, to be reconciled together. Uh, last week in the end of Second Corinthians chapter 5, we went through that great passage on being reconciled to God, of being reconciled to each other, the horizontal reconciliation and the vertical reconciliation. And Paul builds off of that in his plea and in his credentials given to the church at Corinth here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I've titled today's message, The Characteristics of a Faultless Ministry. The Characteristics of a Faultless Ministry. And before we go any further, I just want to clarify, faultless here does not equal perfect. Now, if you want to get really technical with me, you could say, well, actually. Uh, But here's the way that Paul uses this. Paul wants to have a ministry that is without fault. Not in the sense that he's perfect or the people that he calls to him to help him are perfect. We know they're not. We've read the Bible. Uh, People leave um, Paul. uh, We see the sin of many. We see um, mistakes made. We see disagreement. Um, But Paul wants to have a ministry that is not able to be reproached, that is not able to be kind of talked about as a shoddy ministry or as one that is uh, not done truthfully or not done genuinely. Uh, He does not want to be seen as a fake. And so we, we want that as well. We want that for this church and we want that for the ministries that we're involved in. We want that for our lives as Christians in the workplace, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. We want a faultless uh, reputation. Again, not a perfect one, but one where there's no ability for someone else to lob grenades of accusations against us that will hold up. And so that means when we do mess up and we do sin and when we, we do have faults, that we are the kind of people that confess those, that learn from those, and that repent. So we want to see this morning the characteristics of Paul's faultless ministry and look at what that means for ourselves as well. Uh, This is a section of the letter. This is probably right up there with 2 Timothy, Paul's most personal letter. He is um, open and honest with this congregation that has broken his heart. Um, He has had to make painful decisions regarding them. They have made some painful decisions regarding him. And so um, it's almost as you read this that you see him thinking as he's writing. And and it's almost like he bounces around a little bit and he begins to just start listing things. We have a list of nine. We have a list of eight. We have a list of ten um, things that are expounded in this passage. So I want you to to look down uh, at your Bible. And we're going to look at the first three verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to see what the goal is. A faultless ministry is, and the goal of faultless ministry is salvation. The goal of faultless ministry is salvation. Paul is aiming at, 
He has set a goal for salvation. So look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Paul says, working together with him. Working together with him. Uh, this is a little bit ambiguous in the Greek. Um, so there are disagreements over whether or not this is like working together under God. We're working together with him. Like you work together with fellow employers, uh, employees under your employer. Um, but the ESV and some other uh, translations have gone ahead and said, no, this is most likely working together with God. Um, and so I did a little bit of a, of a survey and found that most um, scholars are, are going to say that this means that Paul is considering himself um, a co-worker with God. <laughs> now that's pretty close to blasphemy if you're not careful, right? Me and God, we're working together. We don't normally think that. In fact, one of Paul's favorite designations for himself is a servant of God. That does not, that does not have the picture of working um, with. That has the picture of working for. And yet here, uh, Paul is so bold as to bring in the wording from two verses previous in chapter 5, verse 20, of ambassadors. The ambassador works for the sovereign. And in some senses works with and alongside the king or the one who has sent him. So Paul says that working together with God, what an amazing statement, what an amazing privilege to work together with God. We work together with God. In fact, um, if we're doing ministry rightly this morning, um, then we are doing our ministries, our various ministries, uh, with God. We're, we're partnering with God. And that should, that should make us uh, maybe, a little, maybe shake a little bit, um, maybe reconsider some things, tremble uh, at the, the enormity of what we're doing. But then remember that if we work with God, then God works with us. And how we need him to work alongside of us as we do his ministry. So Paul says, working together with him then, we appeal. And he uses the same word that was used in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So he's reusing the same language, working together with him, then we appeal to you. Paul may be just um, speaking of we in general, Paul and his band. But if you go back to the first uh, verses of the book, uh, Paul and Timothy co-wrote this. So this is Paul and Timothy writing together their feelings for the Corinthians. We appeal to you. We reach out to you. We urge you. We encourage you to what? Not to receive the grace of God in vain. What does that mean? How do you receive the grace of God in vain? Well, remember, this is a letter written to a church. Um, there's a good chance that people in the church, uh, maybe a small amount, maybe a large amount, could not read. They were illiterate. Um, and so often what would happen is that this letter from Paul would be read in the gathering of the church service. So you come together on Sunday to worship the Lord, and hey, we got a letter from Paul, and we're going to read it. Now, just imagine some of what we've studied <laughs> sitting in that area listening to Paul's letter. Wincing, is he talking about me? Uh, this is a, a very personal thing that's being done. And so, what does it mean? What does it mean for him to say to not to receive the grace of God in vain? Well, in in the gathering of the church at Corinth, no doubt there were sold out, committed believers in Jesus who'd had their lives changed. First Corinthians six says uh, has this list of sinners, and it says such were some of you. Such were some of you. So here in this room sit sinners. And what does it mean? Well, perhaps it means 
um, that the, the Corinthians had lost sight of the grace of God that they had received and were wasting it. Vain can mean empty. Uh, they'd received God's grace, but they had forgotten what to do with it. They had forgotten how to act in response to it. It also very well could mean um, that some in the congregation hadn't actually received God's grace. They had come into this fellowship because they liked the coffee. <laughs> they liked whatever. They liked, they liked getting together. They liked the camaraderie. Um, maybe they were rejects and there was a bunch of other rejects. So all the rejects got together and that feels good to be together in a group. But maybe they hadn't actually truly received God's grace. Maybe like Judas, they had come in to the band. They had joined the group and yet they had not truly and really received God's grace. I think both of those options are true in this letter. And I think both of those options are true in this church this morning. Have you received God's grace in vain? Are you receiving God's grace in vain? What are you doing with the gift? That's what grace means. What are you doing with the gift that God has given to you? A gift's meant to be used. A gift is meant to be acted on. And so when grace is shown to us, we need to be those who don't receive it in vain, but receive it in a way that is useful, that we put it into practice, that God's grace to us means we're going to be gracious to one another. Corinthians don't Receive the grace of God in vain. And then Paul finds support for what he's going to say from Isaiah 49, verse 8. And you'll see that in your Bibles. In a lot of Bibles, it's blocked out. Um, it's, it's made a special little verse section here in verse 2. For he says, In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Um, Isaiah 49, if you go back and look at it, is, is written to the servant it's one of the servant songs of Isaiah. And um, the servant is seen in various uh, times as, as very closely related to be the nation of Israel, the servant of God. And yet we know from Isaiah 53 that oftentimes the servant we see is this specific fulfillment that Jesus perfectly fulfills when he comes 700 years later. So Paul, knowing the Old Testament, um, growing up as a Pharisee, as a Jewish person, uh, recalls this verse in Isaiah, and he says about the reception of God's grace and whether or not it's in vain. He says, in a favorable time, I listened to you in a day of salvation. I have helped you. And he reacts to this in a forceful way because the next word is behold. And, and behold's a little bit of an, an older word. We don't, I, I, you probably didn't use it much this week. Behold, I have your jobs for you. <laughs> if, you're, if your boss said that, that's cool and kind of weird. But um, we don't normally use that language, um, but it means something like, hey, pay attention, wake up, listen. Important things to be said here. Pay attention. Uh, as I say to my girls, look at me, <laughs> right? I need you to, to look at me. This is important. Behold, now is the favorable time. So listen, Paul is quoting um, a Hebrew prophet from 700 B.C., this is 55 AD. This is 750 years later. And Paul is saying what Isaiah said 750 years ago is true right now. And it's not any stretch of the imagination to say that it is also true in 2016 right now. Behold, now is the favorable time. Because God's grace is still being given. There will come a time when God's grace is no longer being given. And God will come in judgment, and there is no more grace, there is no second chance. So while there is grace being offered, now is a favorable time. And then he says it again, behold, now 
is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. So Paul uses uh, Isaiah there to, to say not only was this true when Isaiah wrote it, but it's been fulfilled in Jesus and it's true right now. Listen, anybody in this room, now is the time. This is a favorable time. You're sitting in this room hearing someone talk about this book. God is speaking. You are in a favorable place. It's a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. I don't know all of you. I don't know what your life circumstances are. I don't know what happened last night, this weekend, this past week. I don't know why you're here. Maybe you're here because you know it's the right thing to do or because you feel guilty if you don't. Maybe you're here because you need answers. Maybe you're here because you, you just want to impress somebody else. Whatever the case, you're sitting here. And it's true that now is the time of salvation. Paul was adamant last week's passage, 2 Corinthians 5, that reconciliation is necessary. It is so necessary that God decided to send his son Jesus to this world to become a little baby, to be born of a virgin, to grow up in a hick town in the country, to live a life of perfection that we couldn't live, to die a death on a cross that we should have died. And a few weeks ago, we celebrated the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead in the tomb. He rose again. He conquered Satan, sin, and death. And that is good news. And that is the news that you need to hear. And if you're a Christian, you say, I've heard that before. That's the news we need to continue to tell ourselves. Continue to remind ourselves that Jesus died our souls to save. Now is the day of salvation. Well, if, if Paul's goal of faultless ministry is salvation, what's it going to take to reach that goal? Verse 3, he pivots a little bit and he says this, we put no obstacle in anyone's way. Uh, maybe your version says stumbling block. Uh, we don't want to put anything in the way. It's like if you were following me, you were playing a game of follow the leader and I just keep dropping stuff behind me like a banana peel. This actually sounds a lot like a Mario Kart. But if, I, if I've got a green shell, right, or I've got something to drop behind my cart, it's going get, to get in your way. It's an obstacle. Paul wants to do this. Paul wants to say, come follow me and be aware and be careful that he's not leaving behind any obstacles for those who follow him. Why? Because the goal is salvation. The goal is salvation. So clear the way, clear the path. For others that they might see that today is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Paul says we're going to take all obstacles out of the way. So that no fault may be found with our ministry. If you're you're not careful that may sound like he's trying to make his ministry. It's all about his ministry. So we want to get everything out of the way. So everyone thinks uh, Paul's ministry. That's worth giving to. I'll write a check to that. Maybe maybe that's what this sounds like. But but it's it's. It's not that at all. Paul is, is worried about, concerned about, anxious for the glory of God and for God's, um, God to be found by these people, for reconciliation to be found. So he will go to length to make sure there are no obstacles. Listen, are there obstacles that you're laying around for your family to come to Jesus, to understand the scriptures? Are you laying down obstacles at work? Is there an obstacle that when someone finds out you're a Christian... And they, and they look at you kind of funny and think about the things they've heard you say over the past few weeks that, that you've been laying obstacles in these people's way. Well, why would I want that person's religion? Why would I want Christianity? Look at, look at that path strewn with things. 
And it looks difficult. That looks not attractive at all. Paul wants to get rid of those obstacles, and so should we. We ought to think really hard about this. Um, how do we do this in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces, on our teams, on our clubs, in our schools? How do we get rid of these obstacles? Well, first, it's got to be a goal. The goal of salvation has to be there. We forget this oftentimes. Um, we're dealing with uh, mere mortals, and we forget that actually there is no such thing, as Pastor Ron pointed out. We need to remind ourselves what this is all about, what this life is all about. Um, what gain is it, right? If you gain the world and lose your soul. What's the purpose of that? So, Paul continues to move along. He says that no fault may be found with our ministry. And this is, as one um, author said, Christian ministry is discredited when the Christian gives offense by unchristian conduct. We don't want to leave the obstacles. Christian ministry is discredited when the Christian gives offense by unchristian conduct. Another author said this, and think about this in your life. The life of the Christian is the most eloquent advertisement for the gospel. Maybe you know people in your family or work who've, who've never touched a Bible or who haven't read it in a long, long time and want nothing to do with it. What are they seeing of Christianity? Seeing you. They're seeing your life. And that, to many, is the most eloquent advertisement for the gospel. Consider that. If there, I mean, if there's a takeaway from this, let's, let's consider that this week as we go to work. What am I advertising with how I live? Well, as Paul um, begins to move away from talking about the goal, he begins to describe what a faultless ministry looks like. Okay, what's it, what's it look like to, to, take, to get rid of all the obstacles and to have a faultless ministry? Well, uh, look at verse 4, and, and that but begins another shift. And in your notes, point number 2, the characteristics of faultless ministry are authentically countercultural. They're authentically countercultural. This is, in essence, a ministry review for Paul. He's going to go through, he does this actually several times later in the book, too. He's going to do a ministry review. What's my ministry look like? Let's go back and take a look at what my ministry looks like. And I'm going to, verse 4, commend ourselves. We're going to commend ourselves um, and point out what about our ministry is commendable. Let's look at it as servants of God. And so what, um, what Paul does is he begins to, to list out what the faultless ministry looks like. And we do not have anywhere near the amount of time to cover these in detail. So I'm just going to point out some highlights as we go through. Uh, but letter A in your notes is there's, first he starts with nine ministry difficulties. Nine ministry difficulties. And, and this may sound odd uh, because this is probably not how you would commend yourself to uh, your boss or commend yourself to in an interview about why you deserve the job or why you deserve the raise, you, you probably wouldn't start um, with all the things that are difficult, of course, unless you solve them, right? But this is a weird way to do this, except that it's not in the culture of the day. So a lot of the, the cynic, capital C, and stoic philosophers, there's these different streams of philosophy in Greek, the Greek world, a lot of them actually did this. We found... Um, we found inscriptions, we found letters, we found uh, writings that actually a lot of the philosophers would do this. They would actually point out to everyone all the difficulties they'd gone through because that validated their ministry. We're far from that. We point out successes and we leave out difficulties and failures. But a lot of these philosophers actually would come to town and say, why should you listen to me? Well, shipwrecked, uh, got beat up in the last three towns. Sounds like Paul's life. <laughs> 
This, this is exactly what Paul is doing. He's just commending his ministry as others would have commended theirs. He's using the same things that his contemporaries would have done. So, the nine ministry difficulties in verses 4 and 5, he begins to give um, these as his credentials. So the first three are general. They're just general difficulties. Afflictions, hardships, calamities, um, almost synonyms for just difficult things in ministry. What is going to commend Paul's ministry? Difficulty. The difficulties in his ministry are commending his faultless ministry. Second, then he uses three examples of persecution, uh, where he has been persecuted he, uh, by others. He says beatings, imprisonments, riots. And if you go and look in the book of Acts, you can read about these. In fact, there's at least four riots that Paul starts or is a part of in the book of Acts um, that he has been through. And so he says, listen, um, generally I've been afflicted, had hardships, had calamities. Uh, specifically, I've been persecuted uh, by beatings. You can look at my back. Um, I've been imprisoned. I've been in, in riots. And then the last three difficulties are actually chosen ones. They're actually voluntary. The last three are things that he could have gotten out of. He says labors, and that, that's, a, that's an intense word for work. And that maybe that means um, that Paul worked hard so that the churches, in some instances, didn't have to pay him, so that he would work hard as a tent maker, um, as a leather worker, so that he didn't have to do that. Perhaps he's just talking about what it would take to do the road trips that Paul took, um, the, the boat trips to go tell people the good news. He talks about sleepless nights and about hunger. And again, these are not just generally, well, I couldn't sleep last night. <laughs> Man, I'm, I sure am hungry. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about sleepless nights and hunger because of his ministry, because of the risks that he was willing to, to take that he underwent sleepless nights and hunger so that his ministry would be faultless so that he would commend himself and his ministry in this way next in verse six he shifts to talk about eight ministry practices how does he do his ministry how does he do it how does he approach it well these are eight of the ways that he does this uh, by purity that means a holiness of life uh, it means a unity of his life. Everything in, in his life is seen in a pure way. It's done in knowledge. He's not ignorant. Now, this may mean his education. This may mean his work in studying the scriptures. It may mean how he presents the scriptures. But it's not done uh, in ignorance. Patience. His ministry is done with patience. Um, this has to be the case, right? We've, we've, been, we've gone through 1 Corinthians a year and a half ago. Now we're in 2 Corinthians. Paul had tons of patience for this church. This church that continually didn't get it. He conducts his ministry with patience. He conducts his ministry with kindness. I don't know if we often uh, relate Paul with kind. I think sometimes we have a little bit of a skewed view of Paul that he's just like this bulldog that just goes after people all the time. Um, if you read a little more carefully, Paul is kind. Um, in a, by the way, I love the word kind. Um, can we stop using the word nice so much? It doesn't mean anything, right? That's nice. He was nice. She's nice. It's nice. How was it? It was nice. What is it? it doesn't mean anything anymore. Let's use the word kind, right? So let's be kind. It's an active word that we're kind towards one another in how we do things. Paul did his ministry with kindness. He did his ministry by the Holy Spirit in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. This could be seen in the miracles that he worked, in the healings that he did. 
Um, this is evident in the way that he endures because of the Holy Spirit's power in his life. Uh, another way that he practiced his ministry was genuine love. This is authentic, genuine love. It's not held back. It's freely given. He did his ministry by truthful speech. Truthful speech. When you talked with Paul, it was clear he was telling you the truth. He didn't need to go, I swear, I swear. No, I swear, you can ask them. I swear on my mother's grave. He just said said it. And he was a true person. He let his yes be his yes and his no be his no. That's how our ministry should be as well. And, And lastly, the eighth ministry practice is the power of God. The power of God was evident in his ministry. Listen, if our ministry is just in what our skills and our talents can accomplish, then we're not going to do very much. Because really, some of you are skilled and talented at some things, but we're just not good enough to do it on our own, right? We just can't do it. We need God's power to be working. Um, How many of you have done something in the church in your life and thought that was a failure and some fruit came out of it? Anyone ever done something like that? (laughs) Like, whoa. So I didn't plan that, nor did I do a good job, and God still used it. Wow, that is the power of God. Now, I'm not advocating, like, testing that all the time. Be like, well, if I do a really lousy job, God might use it. No, that's not what we're taught to do. We're taught to, to give our best. But the power of God is necessary. The power of Andrew Gilmore does not get us very far. It does, and, you know, it gets grating and wearing after a while. Like, stop talking, okay? The, the power of God is what we need. Uh, Last, uh, Paul does 10 ministry contrasts, 10 contrasts here in verses, the second half of verse 7 all the way through verse 10. Um, These are great to meditate on. These are great to meditate on. It seems that what Paul is doing is he's he's looking at how people considered and saw his ministry or what they thought just by appearances, but then what Paul knows to be true about what's happening, what's actually going on, what's going on deeper, what's going on behind the scenes. And so the first way uh, that we see the contrast is uh, in weapons of righteousness. That Paul conducts his ministry with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. There's all kinds of discussion about what this means, but Paul uses this in various locations. He's going to use it later on in chapter 10 about the weapons of our warfare. Ephesians chapter 6 is famous for the armor of God. Uh, Paul is saying he fights um, with both offensive weapons, his sword, Okay, he's probably uh, using what most people in the Roman world would have known. That's a, a Roman legionary. He had um, a, a fairly short sword, uh, 16, 18, 20 inches. Okay, and he had a shield in his other hand. That was the, the, the common outfit for the Roman soldier. And so what Paul says is, the way that I conduct my ministry is with offensive weapons and with defensive weapons. So we protect the vulnerable, but we go after uh, untruth. We go after doctrinal error. He says, this is how we do this. We, we defend and then we attack. We defend and then we attack. The second ministry contrast is through honor and dishonor. And, and to understand this, um, Paul lived in a world where honor and shame were everything. Um, Pastor Ron especially hammered this point home in 1 Corinthians when we talked about the patronage system in Corinth. Now you buddied up to the rich people and they gave you what um, they gave you money or they gave you uh, a, a stipend or something to help you. And that looked good for them because they were being generous and they were being your patron. And so it was really important in that uh, way to be honored by that on both ends, to be honored, to gain honor, to be seen as honorable. 
And so Paul says, we do our ministry through honor and dishonor. No matter what other people think or see, we're going to keep practicing our ministry. If it appears to be not dishonorable in, in, like, a, in like an underhanded way, but in a way that just is, is not the accepted norm of doing something like that, um, it, it doesn't matter how it is viewed. Paul is going to continue in that through honor and dishonor. He's going to go through slander and praise. He's going to continue to, to, to go through even when people are slandering him. And if you read the writings of Paul, this happened to him all the time. He was betrayed. Uh, people spoke untruths about him. In fact, much of 2 Corinthians is him defending his ministry against lies and slander. Not only that, he said, we're treated as imposters, but we're true. They're treated as imposters, like they're fakes, like they're rebels. But in fact, they know that because they are on God's side that they are true. They're treated as unknown and yet well-known. What? (laughs) Uh, Unknown and well-known. Some have said, well, maybe Paul got to some places where he wasn't, um, ooh, Paul, he wasn't known there and and yet he's, he's unknown. What, what does this mean? Well, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, he, he doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Do we know this guy? He has a message to speak. Whether he's known, whether he's unknown, this also might have the connotation of being recognized. So that when he showed up in a city, when he showed up in an area, that there was recognition that, um, that this is, this is a, a teacher. This is someone who has in, been endorsed. This is someone who is reliable. And perhaps it means that it doesn't matter if he was recognized in that way, the ministry still would go on. As dying and behold, we live. Um, one author said that uh, Paul's ministry from the outside was actually pretty pitiful. Um, if you looked at it, you wouldn't say, let's model our ministry on this guy. Uh, and yet, even though he was dying, and in some ways actually dying, being stoned almost to death, being shipwrecked, being beaten, he knows, behold, we live. We live. Next, as punished and, not, and yet not killed. Uh, this could mean um, the physical punishment that he received at the hands of various authorities, the Jews and the Romans, um, and, and yet staying alive through it and surviving it. It could mean the punishment or the discipline of God through the ministry and yet not being destroyed, being refined. He says uh, that as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And this one does not make sense in our culture. How can you be sorrowful and always, or another word would be constantly rejoicing? I'm sad, but I'm happy. Um, what? <laughs> Excuse me, could you explain that? Yeah, I'm just really, really sad, and I'm really, really happy. Uh, okay, that's interesting. That's weird. I don't know what that looks like or sounds like. But look at Paul's ministry. Betrayal, loss. He, he, he says in Romans 9, he'd rather be damned if it meant that the Jews, his fellow brothers, would come to Christ. He, his, his heart was poured out. He shed tears with these people. He was sorrowful, and yet he never stopped experiencing the joy of the Lord. Read the book of Philippians. Rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. He continues to rejoice no matter the situation. Now, this actually, if we look at it, is true. Because if you watch the news in the last week, there's sorrow and there's rejoicing. Right? There's great sorrow. Um, there are terrorist attacks going on. There are um, policies in our country and in others that are abhorrent um, to us. It, it's, it's tough sometimes to watch the news, right? You just come away and like, man, I do not. Whew, I'm not encouraged. Let's do something happy. 
what, what Paul is saying is we can, we can live in a broken, cursed world and understand and experience and not deflect and not turn away the real, actual sorrow that we experience, but also have joy because we know that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, as poor, yet making many rich. And this probably refers to the fact that Paul did not have a good 401k, um, and he didn't make a lot of money, um, and yet he was in the business of prosperity. In the sense that he understood that what he had to offer was not, like Peter and John said, silver or gold. We don't have any of that, but what we do have, we proclaim to you, right? The good news, that eternal prosperity was to be prioritized over temporal prosperity. Yeah, we're poor. <laughs> I haven't gotten a new suit in a few years. Uh, but, you know, um, we, can, we can keep going because we're making many spiritually rich. These people that were dying, that were worshiping wood and stone, are now worshiping the true God, and they are forever rich in the inheritance of God. And last, the last one is, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. And once again, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Uh, what do you have? I got nothing. What do you have? I got everything. Okay. That's weird. Again. Uh, but you'll actually notice in the verse, verse 10, the end of verse 10, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Um, the word in the Greek is actually the same, except uh, Paul just puts a little preposition on the front to intensify the word. So it's interesting. That he says um, that we don't have anything, but we possess. We really have everything. So I I may not have the newest this, the newest that. I may not have the best this or the best that, but really, I've got everything. I've got everything. Uh, Did you know that that's your inheritance? Your inheritance is is a lot more than what your mom or your dad or your grandma or your rich aunt left you. Your inheritance, Christian, is the universe. You get it all. How do we know that? Because we're co-heirs with Christ. We're co-heirs. We get the same inheritance. Jesus doesn't get 80% and we get 20. Jesus gets 100% and we get 100%. We get all of it. So, so what Paul says is, okay, so we don't got a lot, don't have a lot now, but we actually have everything, so it doesn't matter that we don't have a lot. That's the perspective that Paul runs his ministry on. And that is an inexhaustible way to run your ministry. Because if your resources are inexhaustible, that you, you're not going to run out which means you always have what you need to do your ministry. Because it does not depend only on exterior, financial, uh, physical things. It instead depends on possessing everything and knowing that Jesus is on our team. So we win. We win and we have what we need. What a fantastic way to go about ministry. So that's what I want you to do this week. Let's all practice this. Okay, uh, 27 things to put into practice this week. <laughs> Maybe choose a few or one. And let's, let's look at that. Maybe you can meditate on this passage this week and say, Lord, what do I really need to work on here? Can I truly say I'm sorrowful yet always constantly rejoicing? Is that true of me? We need to look at our, how we see our possessions. Do, are we true speakers? Do we say the truth? Is that our common practice for us? Or do we hedge? Do we exaggerate? These are some things that are worth taking a look at. Well, Paul closes the section um, in point number three in your notes. The heart of faultless ministry is wide open. The heart of faultless ministry is wide open. So we have the goal of faultless ministry is salvation. The characteristics of faultless ministry are authentically countercultural. 
And last, the heart of faultless ministry is wide open. So picture a gate on someone's side yard, one of those double gates, you know, the, the, for the people that have the RV to park or the boat that they put on the side yard, that big double gate, boom, it's wide open. It's not like you got to kind of, you know, the chains on it and you got to kind of get under it and try to squeeze through. It's not you have to jump the fence. It's wide open. So what kind of heart is, is indicative of faultless ministry? It's one that's wide open, which leaves you open to vulnerability. <laughs> if your heart's wide open, you will get hurt. You will. You will get hurt. Paul, his ministry was wide open and he took a lot of heat for it. He was betrayed. He was turned away. He was beaten. The, the law was violated in order to put him into prison. And yet his heart continued to be wide open. Look what he says in verse 11. As a follow-up to these big lists, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. We have spoken freely. If you, if you have an ESV, you can look at that. There's a little tiny letter or number there. And you look at the bottom of your Bible, wherever that note is. And it actually says, our mouth is open to you. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> Did they just have a weird way of greeting each other? No. What that means is that's an idiom to say, our mouth is open to you, which means we're sharing. <laughs> we're sharing with you. We are, we are not holding anything back. We're, we're speaking to you. We're sharing with you. We're talking to you. Our, our mode of ministry is communication. So he says um, that, that we've spoken freely to you. We have not held anything back. And then he uses this word, and it may not sound very, like, uh, it might not stand out, but he says Corinthians. Well, that's who he's writing to, right? Well, no, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more personal than that. Um, this is akin to um, whenever the president or uh, uh, a member of Congress gives a major speech, right? They always say something along the lines of somewhere in the speech, my fellow Americans, right? Okay, it's narrowing the message, you know, us, we, the people, okay? I'm trying to include us all in this sense of patriotism. Well, in this, in this way, Paul is saying it's something he doesn't normally say. He says, Corinthians, you guys. He only does this two other times. And the two other times he does it are high emotion. He does this with the Philippians when he's just overwhelmed with their their generosity. And he's so grateful to them in Philippians 4.15. Philippians, you know, you guys love me and I love you. The other time that he uses it, it's a high energy um, passage. And that's Galatians. When he says, oh, Galatians, who's bewitched you? It's like, come on, guys. He, he's, his emotion is high. And so with the Corinthians here, he is, he is opening himself up saying, Corinthians, we've opened our heart to you. Our heart is wide open. It's wide open. It, it's almost like an invitation. Like you've got, there's space. You can come in. Okay, not like in the left ventricle, but like, like in, in the affections that he has for the people it's, there's, there's room. There's lots of room. There's more than enough room. Come on in. But there's a problem. Verse 12. You are not restricted by us. We're not, we're not chaining the gate. It's wide open. What's the problem? You are restricted in your own affections. Corinthians, take the chain off. What are you doing? We've been open with you. Open yourself up to us. Verse 13. In return. This is almost like um, uh, an investment, 
Okay, it's almost like he's saying actual, like in a return on an investment, right? I put in 100, made 10%, got 110 before it got taxed, okay? So um, you, you, you have this return on investment. He says, in return, in return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Let's, let's do it. Reciprocity. We're opening our hearts to you. Please, I, I beg you, I make an appeal, open your hearts to us. And he's not saying, I speak to, I speak as ch- to children, like, come on, kids. It's speaking as like, kids, children, I love you. Corinthians, children. Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 3 that, that he's their spiritual father. That they have lots of guardians, but they only have one father. And that's Paul. Paul loves these as he loves his children. He's not talking down to them. He's talking affectionately to them. He's speaking to them in such a way as to draw them in. I love you. Open your heart. You've hurt me is what we've seen. You've hurt me. You've caused me great pain. I've caused you great pain. I'm still wide open to you. Please be wide open with us. Please return this. This is what faultless ministry looks like. It's not what perfect ministry looks like. This is not unattainable. Paul was not perfect. Paul was not perfect. Okay, but, but what this means is that our goal, our goal in ministry is salvation. Okay? The characteristics are countercultural. Our heart is wide open and so that we have nothing in our ministry that someone could speak against. That is not to say that someone couldn't criticize something. Okay, like, ah, you didn't get that right. Or and that wasn't, you could do that better. Or you misspelled that word. Right? That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about um, constructive criticisms like that. Um, we're talking about no one can no one can lay any blame. It means if somebody said about Paul's ministry, says he's just in it for the money, everyone would look around and be like, "No, he's not." It would just be obvious that that's not that's not going to stick. That accusation won't work. There's no there's no fault there. So listen, village. Um, in in our ministries, we need to aim here. For faultless ministry. Again, not perfect ministry. Does, no one expects, please don't expect me to be perfect up here. You already know that, right? I don't expect you to do perfect ministry. What we should expect of each other and of ourselves is that we will work hard to have nothing that anybody can say against our ministry that would stick. Those people are just in it for, no, rather, wow, those people are sincere. They're genuine. They really love God. They, they screw up and they mess up, but, but they're willing to be okay with that and to confess and to get better. They can take criticism. That's what we want our ministry to be about. That's what we want our ministry to be like. We don't want to be arrogant. We, don't, we want to be humble. We want to be the kind of ministry that we strive to not have any faults laid at our door. This is a great passage. This is a fantastic passage of Scripture because it shows Paul's heart. It shows Paul's love for the Corinthians. So, the, so what do we do with this? I mean, like, where do we, where do we go? There's a lot of stuff. There's a, three long lists. A few things. Let's just think this week. What are you known for? Okay? If you're an ambassador, last week, right? Second Corinthians 5. If you're an ambassador in a foreign land, the king has sent you. What are you known for? Because what you're known for is reflecting back on the king. So what are you known for at work? What's your reputation? As much as you can control that, Right? Um, we, we, we do our ministry through slander, okay, through untruth. But as much as you can control, what is your reputation? What are you known for at work? What are you known for at school? 
Guys, what are you known for in your families, in your neighborhoods? When people walk by your house, are those the fill in the blank? Is it a good thing they're going to say or is it, a, is it a bad thing? What are you known for? What are we doing as ambassadors? Um, does our life reflect the one that we work for? Uh, one of, uh, one of um, the guys that I read said this, um, our mess blurs our message. If we leave a mess, it blurs our message. We can't be the ones that leave a mess. Again, this is also the picture of like, follow me without throwing stuff behind so that you're going to trip. This is, we don't leave a mess so that the message is clear, so that the message is understood, so that when you say, I'm a Christian, people don't go, oh, no, <laughs> right? That they go, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Because you're, you know, because you're a sincere person. You're genuine. You work hard. Um, you're not perfect, but I, I don't really have any, any faults to find with you here at work or at school or in the home. How, how do we go about our various ministries? And I don't just mean like the official ones that you're signed up for. I mean for how you live your life. The, the other thing that I think I would like us to, to, to think about is the sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I think it's really huge. I think it's really, really big. We don't like to think about the sorrow, so we kind of like put that behind a closed door and just like pretend it doesn't exist and everyone's happy. Yay! Instagram, all the perfect photos of my family, right? No. No one goes, nobody, I don't think anybody in this room got up this morning. Like the first thing he did was like, selfie. (laughs) Bedhead, baby, right? That's because that's what we don't, that's what we don't, that's what we don't let the world see, right? We don't, we don't do that. So how do we, how do we, how do we really and genuinely be sorrowful yet always rejoicing? Um, How do we do this? The NLT says our hearts ache, but we always have joy. That in our aching hearts, we have joy. Guys, this would be really, really countercultural in our places of employment, in our neighborhoods. If we were sorrowful, genuinely sorrowful, heartbroken, heartache, yet joyful at the same time, people, what, how, how do you do that? Great question. Glad you asked. Want to go to coffee? <laughs> that, that is fantastic. That is what we want. We want to be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing because that reflects the world in the way it really is. Someday we won't be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We'll just be always rejoicing. <laughs> there will be no more sorrow. That's Revelation 21 and 22. The end of the story is it's all gone. No more tears, no more sorrow, just rejoicing. For now, the reality is both. Um, the second one is the, the possessions and the money uh, that, that Paul talks about, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. Um, this would be countercultural as well. This would be countercultural as well. What's the most important thing in your life? Is it your stuff? Okay, or is it people? Is it relationships? Do you love stuff and use people to get it? Okay, or do you love people, you know, and use your stuff? That's what it's there for. Okay, what do you love? What are we known for? Are we known for piling up comforts around us so that we make it all about this world rather than the one to come? We would be countercultural if we used our money and our resources in ways that were countercultural. So as we go today, I want to just go back to, to verses one and two. Listen, today is the day of salvation. And that day of salvation for you was last week or three years ago or 40 years ago or whatever. It was the day of salvation, the day that you stopped and you listened to the God of the universe saying, come, come to me. To think about the great mystery of the cross where the only perfect one who lived was actually crushed by God 
for us in our place. That is our good news, that you are a sinner and that someone loved you enough to die for you so you wouldn't have to. That one is worth trusting. That one is worth putting your faith in. The, the, the great hymn says this, and, and we sing it, and we don't sing it like it would be read, but I want to read it. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for, for me? Who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued? And that's why the response is, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Christian, that's your story. That's it. What in the world? How? I don't, why? why? Okay, I believe. I trust. Yes, I want that. I want eternal life. I want forgiveness. I want Christ. I want the Holy Spirit in my life. I want heaven. I want true church community and all the mess that it is. Yes, I'll sign up for that. If that's your decision today, you need to talk to somebody. You need to talk to somebody in this church. Come talk to me right after we pray. Um, find um, someone in this church that you know is a spiritual leader and talk to them and say, I want this. How do I, how do I get this? How do I do this? That would be the most important decision you could make today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this is this is not a self-help book or a motivational book, but this book that we've been looking at is the very words that you have spoken. God, how kind of you to preserve your word for us thousands of years later that we might see that the things that were true 2,000, 2,700, 5,000 years ago are true today. So God, we're grateful. We're grateful that you loved us. We're grateful that you've given us the ministry of reconciliation, that you've made us ambassadors. Help us to live in light of that, that our faultless ministry might point to you and not ourselves, that the the glory may be um, yours and not ours, that we may point others to you, and that we might just revel in the glory that you get. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. I pray for that one or those this morning who are considering the claims of Christianity. Break down the barriers, Lord. Do your work now. In Jesus' name, amen.